Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Tim Petros from the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development at the NIH on this show. Quite a long title. <laughs> Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you obtained your PhD from Columbia University in 2009. From there you moved on to Stuart Anderson Laboratory and at Whale Cornell Medical College to do a postdoc. Later you moved to Gord Fischel's lab at the New York University. And finally, you joined the NIH NICHD as an investigator, investigator in 2017, where you, are still, where you are still today. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So I was always kind of interested in biology and math and science as a kid. Um, when I went to Brown University for my undergrad, my original plan was to focus on biomedical engineering. Um, and after about a year and a half, I realized I really liked the bio part a lot more than the engineering part of that plan. So um, I kind of switched my focus to, to true biology and um, took an introduction to neuroscience course at Brown and was fascinated with what I learned at that course and, and then really started to take scientific research more seriously and then majored in neuroscience there and have been, um, you know, really kind of fallen in love with the field and, and eventually found my way to focusing on developmental neuroscience. Um, and that's kind of um, um, what took me to the path that uh, led me to where I am today. So yeah, coming to your science that centers around understanding how intrinsic genetic programs and environmental signals interact to generate the incredible interneuron diversity. Um, I want to start in the year 2011. Um, there a paper was published that seemed to be the starting point of your research interest in the developmental field of neurons. Um, the title of this paper was Pluripotent Stem Cells for the Study of CNS Development. Um, in your first postdoc, you were interested rather in the retina and the retina cells. So what made you switch uh, topics? Was it like the labs you were attached to or was it your own interest? Yeah, so during my, my PhD work at Columbia, I was focused on axon guidance in Carol Mason's lab. And um, I was interested in understanding the molecules that regulate decisions of axons as they project through the nervous system, and in particular at the optic chiasm. Um, and after kind of completing that degree, I became a little bit more interested in cell fate rather than axon guidance, kind of trying to understand how this incredible diversity of neurons is generated. And that's what led me to um, Stuart Anderson's lab and began to focus on interneurons because um, at that point, you know, um, there wasn't a huge amount known about the mechanisms that regulated interneuron development. And this is an incredibly diverse cell type that had dozens and dozens of cell types and how you generate that diversity from a relatively small proportion of the brain during embryogenesis was both really intriguing to me and really challenging to try to think about. And so Stewart's lab, one of the early projects I did was trying to use stem cells to, um, to generate more interneurons. This was before kind of before there were really good tools and, and protocols like there are now to develop specific neuronal types of interest from stem cells. So that was kind of the earliest days of us playing around with different protocols to try to increase generation of GABAergic uh, inhibitory forebrain cells so that we could get enough of them 
um, in the dish to then to then study them. And so those are kind of some of the initial studies I did um, in Stewart's lab to, to look at rec- uh, mechanisms that regulate interneuron fate and maturation. So um, I'm not an expert in neurobiology. <laughs> This is why I wanted to ask what, what are interneurons? Uh, what is the difference to neurons? So um, the brain consists, and, and the spinal cord and, and regions of the nervous system consist of two primary types of neurons. So there's glia, which are the astrocytes and oligodendrocytes um, that are critical for various aspects of neuronal function. And then in terms of neurons, there's excitatory um, uh, neurons that um, release glutamate um, and excite the cells that they target. And then there's another set of neurons called interneurons um, that release GABA and uh, usually release GABA and inhibit the cell types um, that they synapse on. So interneurons basically are locally projecting. They they don't send their axons outside of the region they're located. Those are called projection neurons and interneurons are um, are locally projecting and synapsing on cells within their same environment. And most of them uh, in the forebrain that I study are GABAergic inhibitory, but there are also excitatory um, interneurons in other parts of the brain and spinal cord. So it's very diverse, this group. Yep. Yep. So you then followed up on this first paper that we just talked about um, by investigating the effect of NKX 2.1 on mouse embryonic uh, stem cells. Um, what did you find out about the effect of this uh, molecule or inhibitor? <laughs> yeah, so so um, NKX 2.1 for a while, um, is a, it's a transcription factor and it is um, sort of a master regulator of interneurons from a particular part of the brain called the medial ganglionic eminence or MGE. This is a, a transient structure in the embryonic mouse brain. Um, and it um, from this region, um, probably over half of the interneurons in the brain and the cortex are born. And so NK2.1 is a really critical gene, both for the, for the formation of this Uh, of cells from this region. Um, for that study, we were kind of using it as a marker. So we know that it, uh, in our stem cell differentiation protocol, if a cell expressed NKX 2.1, there's a pretty good chance that there was going to be a GABAergic cell um, and, and hopefully a, an interneuron. Um, so what we were doing is trying to um, generate, uh, uh, add different molecules and use a little bit of genetic tricks to try to increase the amount of cells that express NKX 2.1. And that would be a good indicator that we were making more of the um, cell types we wanted to study. Now, what type of uh, transcription factor is that? So NKX 2.1, um, it's, uh, it's generally a repressor. So it's not, uh, not, not always the case, but in most cell types, um, it acts as a repressor. So it interacts with Groucho and a couple other proteins to usually repress genes um, where it it binds. But there are reports out there that in some circumstances it can activate genes probably with different partners that it binds to. So after that, you started your own lab. And I always like to uh, inquire, uh, what is, how do you find the project or the field or the topic that you uh, want to investigate in your own lab? Um, so how was the process for you when you started your own lab? Yeah, so after that work in Stewart's lab, um, he moved his lab to UPenn in about 2012, I think. And that's when I moved on to Gord Fischel's lab, who was another um, researcher at, at NYU, also studying interneurons. And it was there where I kind of found my footing a little bit more in terms of what really interested me in interneuron development. And I, w I became really interested in kind of these initial stages of fate decisions. So you have this kind of ball of heterogeneous cells 
in the brain and what are the factors leading to these initial fate decisions? How, what, what's the, what genes or epigenetic mechanisms are involved in these initial fate patterns? So that was kind of where I found um, my footing in Gorge Lab and where I wanted to focus on it. And so after, you know, um, five or so years in his lab, I, you know, the, I think it kind of developed a, a clear vision of what I wanted to focus on. And that's kind of when I went on the job market and, you know, was very fortunate enough to get a couple offers and ended up here at, at NICHD. So it's basically, you know, my current um, lab work is an extension of what I was working on um, as a postdoc, which I think is pretty normal for most people. Some people kind of go do something very different from the postdoc, but most kind of build on what they what they learn as a postdoc when they start their own lab. So yeah, yeah just describe what you um, what you are working on. But to investigate this, you performed homo and heterotypic transplantations, and I think I even saw a paper exactly describing how to use um, this process um, to investigate um, the diversity and maturation of uh, interneurons. Um, so how did you um, set up those experiments? So what is the process of this? Yeah, so th this is a project that um, that um, we did most of the work in my postdoc lab in Gord's lab, and then kind of finished up when I started here. So the idea behind this was there's been a lot of work focusing on the intrinsic genetic programs that regulate fate and maturation of these interneurons. But another big factor is how the brain environment influences um, fate and maturation and connectivity. So what we wanted to do is challenge um, newborn interneurons in a different environment to see if you take cells and put them in a different environment, does that affect their fated maturation? So we did, we were able using um, genetic um, tools to harvest fluorescent young um, post-mitotic interneurons from P1 and P2 mouse brains from the cortex and hippocampus. We could basically dissociate the brains um, get single cell solutions of these red um, interneurons and then transplant them back into a host mouse. So we took cortical cells and transplanted them back into the cortex and we took cortical cells and transplanted them back into the hippocampus. And by doing that, we could say, okay, if we take cortically derived cells located in the cortex and put them in the hippocampus, how does that hippocampal environment change their fate and maturation? And then we could perform electrophysiology on them and also um, different um, label them for different amino um, markers to look at their cell types. And we found some interesting um, differences. Some, some aspects of a cell type seem to be dependent on the donor, so seem to be a little bit more genetically programmed, and other aspects of um, the, the, the number of subtypes you see in a region seem to be more dependent on the host environment as if various factors from the host could influence the types of neurons that survived um, in a particular region. Um, and then so, in my, I'm sorry, in my uh, lab, we also continued by looking at the striatum, so the cortical cells in the striatum and vice versa and, and had a little bit of evidence of some kind of interesting stuff there. So the overall point was to look at how the environment influences interneuron fate and maturation. And in this case, or in this um, scope, the environment is like not like the outside environment, but really the, the local like niche environment of where the cell is residing. Exactly. So the brain environment. So how mm -hmm. does different brain regions affect um, affect the maturation of of interneuron subtypes? Uh, can you give some more details and and how the environment uh, plays a role in there? Yeah. So you know, um, if you take um, if you take cortical cells and put them back into the cortex, you see the normal subtypes you would expect to see. Um, there is a, a subtype of cells 
um, of interneurons that is found specifically in the hippocampus called, uh, sorry, MG derives um, interneurons in the hippocampus only. They're called adnos expressing cell. They express adnos. And so these uh, cells from MG are not found in the cortex, but they are found in the hippocampus. And so what we found is when we took cells in the hippocampus um, at P1 that should contain these NNOS cells and put them into the cortex, we still didn't really see these NNOS cells there. So that implies that something about the cortex is influencing the, um, the ability of these cells to survive in that region. So possibly they preferentially are killed off in the cortex, or maybe aspects of the environment kind of repress um, formation of these cell types. And so that's the type of thing that that we were looking at. In the perfect world, what we'd like to do is instead of looking at a couple factors, uh, um, cell, cell type um, um, labels, we'd like to do an unbiased screen. So what we wanted to do is do these transplantations, wait 30 days, then take the transplanted cells and do single cell sequencing on them to see how um, fully have they, has their um, has their transcriptome been altered in these challenges? And we ran into a technical challenge that we're still trying to overcome to be able to do that. But that would be the, the gold standard experiment to really look at how does the brain environment influence the transcriptome and maturation of young interneurons. Uh, do you think that it has to do something with uh, how old um, the brain region is um, evolutionary? So how the adaption could work then? Yeah, so we haven't, um, so it's possible that um, there'd be specific effects of the brain region. I think what's more likely is that the, and one thing we didn't look at is the, is the developmental time period. So we always wondered, you know, we took cells from from about P0 to P2 um, mouse brain, which is very early. So they're post-mitotic, but they're still very young. At some point, they probably become more mature in their genetic properties and, and physiological properties that if you did this transplantation, you wouldn't see the same effect we saw. Maybe the cells would be locked into their fate. And so we always wondered, would we see the same effect if we harvested the cells from P5 or P10 brains through the transplant? And that just wasn't an experiment that we ever had the, the time to do. But certainly um, looking at the developmental time point for when you would see these changes is a really intriguing question. And we don't have a great answer to that. And I think we are, what we are talking about here is that all the experiments were done in mice, right? So this yes. is, uh, yeah. But next, you went on and transplanted interneuron precursors into early postnatal mouse brains. Um, so, what did you find there? Well, so, that, so that's the that's the same experiment we were talking about. So that's where we took um, P0 mouse uh, cells from P0 mouse and transplanted them into uh, early postnatal, like P0 or P2 mouse brain. So everything was homochronic, so the same age of, of the mouse. We didn't play around very much with transplanting young cells into older mice or old cells into younger mice or anything like that. But all of that was postnatal mice. Okay. And uh, just in February, February this year, um, a paper came out in eLife um, looking at transcriptional heterogeneity of certain cells in the mouse brain. Um, is this like also connected to the single cell um, challenges you were referring to? Yeah, so that one, so that was a little, uh, a little different. The the technical hurdle we yet to kind of overcome is, is identifying the the um, the cells, that, definitively identifying the cells that were transplanted. But um, what we did in, in this study that we published early, earlier this year in eLife is um, single cell sequencing at this point in the embryonic mouse brain to identify various cell types. But um, what we realized is that there's a, a cell type called um, um, located in the ventricular zone, which we often call apical progenitor cells or neural stem cells, that um, 
In comparison to post-mitotic cells and basal progenitors, they're greatly outnumbered at the ages of mouse brain we look. And so we wanted to uh, basically enrich for these apical progenitor cells to perform single cell sequencing on them to, to understand the diverse genetic diversity in these cells, because that hadn't been fully appreciated or investigated in previous studies. So we used a mouse line um, called Nestin GFP, in which GFP was expressed um, by the Nestin promoter enhancer. And Nestin is expressed specifically in these um, S, uh, in these VZ cells. Um, and then it goes down, um, gets down-regulated when the cells um, go further down the developmental traje trajectory. So we could dissociate um, different brain regions in this mouse, collect these green cells, and really enrich for this population that we were interested in. And we found, um, and then we verified gene expression using MC2s, and we found an incredible diversity of gene expression in these apical progenitors throughout different regions of the brain, both between different regions, um, so cells that give rise to different types of GABA and neurons, and within different regions of the brain. So the a dorsal part of this MGE, we found genes that were expressed only dorsally and only ventrally. And so we're currently trying to understand if some of these genes with intriguing or unique expression profiles are playing important roles in fate and maturation of um, of these various cell types. Yes, could could it be that these are already determined to their developmental process? So I think um, in terms of like um, drastic differences, brain regions, so dorsal versus ventral, where dorsal is, is generate, dor the dorsal cortex is generating all of these excitatory projection cells I mentioned, and the ventral brain is generating all of these GABAergic inhibitory cells. I think that kind of general um, definition is is distinct at this time period. What isn't well known is out of the dozens and dozens of inner neurons, at what point do they kind of um, are locked into specific interneuron subtypes. And there's a lot of evidence that this seems to happen to some level um, as the cells become post-mitotic. So as they exit the cell cycle, they start to express genes that are indicative of mature cell types. And that's work from Gord Fischel and a number of other people. But um, we think that there might be other information that's patterning these decisions early on in the cells as they're still dividing. And so that's kind of what, what we were looking into in, in this um, in this project, um, um, doing the single cell sequencing in this particular mouse line. So you, yeah, we were talking about like transcriptional programs that those cells are in. But uh, yeah, so you did RNA sequencing and all that. But did you also, or are you planning to look at things like um, the structure of chromatin, like is the, yeah, like ataxic experiments or like um, yeah, epigenetic marks um, that are maybe put there early on? Um, is this something you are looking at? Yeah, so absolutely. So you know, um, us and others have done a lot of single cell sequencing, but it wasn't until the last couple of years where the technical technological advances. Um, had allowed um, researchers to look at chromatin organization and chromatin state at the single cell level. So um, about two years ago, I think 10x I'm so sorry, sorry to, to interrupt you. So it's really um, the possibility to do single cell analysis that hindered you to look at those things, right? It's not that you, you wouldn't want to do like bulk attack or something like that, but it's really that you need to do single cell analysis. Yeah, so so um, you know this is a heterogeneous environment. The regions we're looking at with lots of cells at different state of development, and so 
Um, things like bulk ATAC seek and uh, other bulk tools had been around for um, a while, but doing taking these brain regions and doing bulk ATAC or other other um, bulk um, sequencing technologies to look at chromatin accessibility doesn't really give us the fine tune um, um, resolution to look at differences between these regions. So um, it wasn't until work from um, Jason Bonestro and Bing Ren and others that started to develop these single cell chromatin accessibility techniques that uh, um, that I started to get more intrigued that this was a possibility. Um, and then about, I think, two years ago or so, 10X Genomics, um, who we've used for the single cell RNA sequencing, came out with a commercially available single cell ATAC um, sequencing. And the ATAC accessibility for chromatin um, uh, transposase uh, accessible chromatin allowed you to look at chromatin accessibility in the single cell level. So um, we were one of the first people here at the NIH to, to purchase this kit and we started and did basically exactly what we did with the single cell RNA-seq. We took these different brain regions in the embryonic mouse that give rise to different neuronal populations and did single cell ATAC sequencing um, on that. Um, and this is a paper that's currently in press in Nature Communications. And we basically uh, created what we call an epigenome atlas of the embryonic mouse brain. Um, so we performed single cell ATAC sequencing and compared and contrasted um, chromatin accessibility between these regions and within the regions. And what we realized when we did that is that looking at accessibility is great, but it doesn't give us enough insight into possible promoter enhancer interactions and other um, information about chromatin state that is useful for understanding fate decisions. Um, so we followed up this single cell uh, ATAC-seq assays by performing cut and tag um, on histone marks. So um, as, as many people in this audience probably know, various histone marks, so histone acetylations and methylations, are indicative of promoters and enhancers. And so what we did is we performed cut and tag, which is kind of a newer, fancier, cheaper way to do old-fashioned chip seek. Um, we performed cut and tag on these same brain, brain regions to look at K27 trimethyl, K27 acetyl, and K4 trimethyl. And by integrating that with our single cell RNA data that we already generated and our single cell ATAC data, um, we are able to kind of really identify specific loci that have the signature of an enhancer and promoter um, and use Cicero analysis to look at co-accessibility um, at the single cell level and compare and contrast all of um, this. So it's, a, it's an incredible amount of data that we generated um, comparing different spatial regions in the embryonic brain at both the single cell chromatin um, level, single cell RNA, and their histone modifications. So this is then, but did you do this like at one time point or did you also resolve it over time? So what com comes first? So yeah, so that was uh, something we you know thought pretty hard about. So the first thing we did was focus solely on one time point. So we did E12, which is a time point in the mouse where um, you're starting neurogenesis has occurred um, in the, certainly in the ganglionic eminences, so the regions that give rise to the um, to the uh, um, cortical inner neurons that we study, and it's just about to begin in the dorsal cortex where it gives rise to the excitatory cells. Um, so we compare to contrast these brain regions at one time point. Um, after we were confident that this single cell ATAC data produced um, good data, quality data. We also did um, a, a, a series of experiments where we collected interneurons from P30 mice, so juvenile mice, from the cortex and hippocampus that were fluorescently labeled and performed single-cell ATAC sequencing on these as well. Um, and then again, we could compare and contrast the mature 
um, interneurons that we could harvest from the brain, uh, the cortex of the hippocampus, and compare their chromatin accessibility profiles to the the embryonic time points. But theoretically, in the perfect world, you know, these kits are quite expensive. In the perfect world, it'd be great to do five time points like other people do for single cell RNA seq, and then we could really follow the trajectory of of chromatin changes throughout development in various brain regions or cell types. Um, and combining that with with gene expression profiles would you know, is a very powerful way to look at the fate of maturation over time in a developing mouse or other organism. Yeah, the paper you were just mentioning. So we are recording this on July twelfth, <laughs> and uh, when this is published, it's probably published already. So um, I will put the link to the paper then in the show notes. Is that on BioArchive? Yeah, so it is on BioArchive. Okay. Um, I don't remember the exact title, it's something like an epigenome atlas of the embryonic mouse forebrain. And um, and the other good thing, you know, one another important thing to me at least is to make this type of data as accessible as possible. So once we had all this data, we had to figure out how to make it easily accessible for the community. And so in addition to depositing a geo, we use the UCSC uh, genome browser platform to um, to input all of this data. So all of the single cell RNA-seq, single cell ATAC-seq, all of the cut and tag methylation. We also did HI-C and, and CAPTURE-C on these brain regions to look at um, higher order chromatin interactions. And we've inputted all this data onto a USC um, a genome browser file that anybody can go um, to and type in their favorite gene of interest and look at uh, the RNA level, accessibility level, co-accessibility with other regions um, on that. And so all of that is on my lab website. You can find it on the data, data sharing window on my lab website. There's a direct link to the to the epigenome atlas on the USC browser that anybody can go and play around with and even modify the data that they want to see and eliminate it and you know change color coding and whatever. So you know that was really important to us to make it um, to make this this huge data set um, accessible to to other researchers. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes so that it's just a click away. So yeah, we just talked about the the, the work that's, that is in press, but what are you working on right now that will come out maybe, let's say, in the next five years? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're trying to kind of follow up on some of these. So so one thing we're doing, basically what I just described, kind of this epigenome atlas, that was just in wild-time mouse. And the way I think about it is it kind of set the ground state for the, the chromatin state in different brain regions and development. But then another big question is trying to understand what goes wrong in various diseases, um, both in terms of gene expression and epigenetic um, state. And so the follow-up experiment is let, let's take a mouse line, let's take a gene of interest and figure out, um, uh, generate a mutation in it and figure out what happens both in terms of RNA expression and cell fate and chromatin state um, when a gene is perturbed. So um, we've we've been focusing on this gene called EZH2, which is um, a critical player in this PRC2 complex involved in um, methylating histones um, that are critical for repression. So we asked the question of if, if when this uh, gene is removed, and this gene has been well studied in cancer and is critical for um, cell fate and cell psychodynamics, and so we asked when this gene is removed in the MGE, a particular region of the brain that gives rise to specific subtypes of the neurons, what happens to cell fate? 
um, what happens to gene expression, what happens to chromatin state. So we've repeated a lot of the assays I've talked about before in this mouse knockout. And, and what we see is that there are changes in cell fate in terms of different subtypes, uh, increases or decreases of MG-derived cell types in the brain. We see changes in methylation, which is expected in this mutation. We see changes in accessibility. And so, um, you know, we're probably, I don't know, 80% of the way done with this study and should be kind of writing that up um, uh, this year. So that's where we envision this tool being used so people can use our resource, um, investigate how mutations and a gene of interest to them alters any of these, these, um, these assays. We look at histomethylation, high C chromatin dynamics. Um, so that's kind of one big area of focus. A second area is um, we kind of went through and looked at particular genes of interest to, to identify maybe new enhancers that had been overlooked or um, other genomic loci that might be critical for for a particular fate. And so, you know, we know some genes that are critical for fate from various um, uh, subtypes from various brain regions. And so when we looked a little bit more closely at some of these genes, there were intriguing, promising candidates for enhancers or genomic interactions that might regulate that. So what we're currently working on is developing mouse models where we can perturb these potential enhancer promoter interactions to better identify that this candidate enhancer, if we if we um, mute uh, if we generate a mutation in the way such that it can't interact with the promoter, how does that affect gene expression, epigenetic changes, and cell fate from this region? So we're currently working with another lab here, the NICHD, to kind of generate a mouse line or two that might allow us to look specifically at enhancer promoter interactions that came out of this large data set we generated. That sounds uh, very intriguing and very interesting. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to reading more of that uh, because, yeah, the, like enhancer promoter interactions are interesting and ubiquitous at the one hand, and, and it's really hard to find like uh, cause and consequence on the other hand, uh, because there are so many. <laughs> so that's yeah, so uh, you know, what we have found and, and others find too is it's, it's quite challenging to identify promoter, definitively identify promoter enhanced interactions because um, you know, you can make luciferase assays to look at this, but that's kind of all artificial and, and, and heterologous cell types usually. So you know, I think a lot of this, what we found, especially comparing the brain regions, a lot of this is cell type specific or brain region specific. And we were quite impressed with the diversity and differences we saw in accessibility um, and, and different promoter enhanced interactions in various brain regions. So pinning that down is really critical that you're looking at the proper cell type at the proper time. And it's really, um, really challenging to do that. So there were instances where like in our Capture-C data, so Capture-C is a is a modification of high C where you can look at direct interactions. And so like at the NCAGS 2.1 promoter, we, we found some intriguing candidates upstream and downstream where there was a direct interaction between NCAGS 2.1 promoter and other gene loci upstream and downstream that was specific to the MGE and not in other brain regions. Um, but that still doesn't tell us that it's a promoter enhancer interaction. It could be promoter of two genes or just you know something else going on. So, so really um, that's why I think having this epigenome atlas so we can see that direct interaction. We can also look at the K27 acetylation to see if it has the mark that looks like an enhancer. We can look at the accessibility to see if it is co-accessible in these regions. And so having this entire data set, I think, gave us a lot more confidence than just looking at one factor that, hey, this looks like an enhancer. It has the K27 acetyl. It directly binds to that region. Um, it's accessible only in the cell type and, and so on. So 
because um, we were actually fooled. There are genes where we looked at that we know were only expressed in one brain region, but they were accessible, like the promoter was accessible in all four brain regions. And so if you look at the single ATAC seek data, you would be misled and thinking, okay, this promoter is open everywhere. It's probably expressed everywhere, but we know that it's only expressed in one of these brain regions. So that, you know, kind of uh, conveyed to us that the more data, the more ways you look at a particular brain region, the more confidence you have that um, that you'll have a better understanding of the of the genetic and epigenetic regulation of a gene or a particular loci. Yeah, this really hints to the necessity of doing multiomics approaches nowadays, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what that's you know, um, the challenge uh, is getting to the point where kind of anybody can generate this data. I mean, if you have the money to buy kits from 10x sequencing and you can prepare your cells and nuclei, you can generate this data. The quality is good. Challenges, what do you do with it then? And so that's where, you know, figuring out the best computational approaches and tools to look to um, to mine your data set and how to integrate it with other data sets that are out there that have used other modalities to look at this. And, you know, Raul Sidijay at the New York Genome Center is a big uh, proponent of this, trying to integrate multiomics so that you can generate your own data set and then integrate it into other data sets that are out there to say, if you only do single cell RNA-seq, you might be able to map it on to others that did single cell ATAC-seq and actually learn chrome and accessibility from your cells, even though you didn't perform it. So that whole multiomics approach, I think computationally is is growing and there's so many more tools out there that we can start to do some of those things that um, were kind of a fantasy five or 10 years ago. Yeah, but then it would also be even more important to document your experiment correctly, right? If you integrate yeah. two data sets from two different labs, I mean, the, how do yeah, you know that I mean, it's exactly the same thing that you're looking at? Yeah, so we and others have found challenges with that. You know, we try to download data from Geo, and sometimes either the quality isn't um, as good as you'd like, or you know maybe the format they put it in makes it challenging for you to get it out. So especially in the early days when this was still kind of getting up and running, there wasn't a, um, a gold standard streamlined process for doing that. So, but like any experiment, I mean, you kind of need good quality data to make analysis. So if the your initial data somebody gets or is online is not great, it's obviously going to make it a challenge for you and your lab to assess it and analyze it. So um, yeah, good data in equals good analysis out, bad data in, uh, more challenging. So that's true for all of science. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Yeah, I think all scientists, hopefully all scientists have reached that point. And I think it's a good learning experience, you know, you, whether it's on a project or a particular experiment or, you know, type of analysis where you, you've done all the troubleshooting you can do and you just kind of can't figure out how to do it. So I think, it, you know, especially I've learned as being a PI for a short amount of time, you know, you have to kind of know when to make smart decisions about what to pursue and keep pursuing and where maybe you just have to make a decision to kind of end the project either because the techniques aren't around for you to do what you want, you know, you'd have to develop them or you've just kind of done everything you can think of. And maybe there's technical hurdles or something that's just not working. And, um, you know, figuring out that, especially for like postdocs and grads, and figuring out that time where I need to keep pushing through this and try other things versus maybe there's another experiment or project that I can start to build on 
um, if this isn't working. Because sometimes maybe taking a couple months off of a project and not thinking about it and reading another paper and then your light bulb kind of goes off and you think of another way to do something that you were kind of stuck doing. You know, I think I would hope all scientists come across that because that's good learning. And um, and I think it's important lessons to to better understand how to try to deal with these challenges and problems in the great unknown of science as we try to answer questions and, and, and figure out what experiments to do. So so in the last 36 minutes, uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Uh, can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I'd say um, it's probably recency bias, but I, I do think this epigenome atlas we've created, in terms of work I've done where I could envision it, um, being um, influential to other researchers or at least appreciated by the field as a useful tool or data set, I do think this kind of epigenome atlas could have um, a lot of potential for other researchers um, studying these early time points in development or thinking about how to integrate um, RNA data with, with chromatin accessibility, with, with cut and tag or histone modifications. I think um, we're certainly not the only ones to do it. There's others doing it. But I think, you know, we spent a lot of time figuring out how best to kind of um, put this together. And the fact that there's a really nice, usable, accessible tool for the community, um, I think is really helpful. So it might be recency bias, but my hope is that, you know, this study and possibly ones that grow out of it will be, um, will be, are and will be some of my more important contributions to science to date. So thank you, Tim, for your time and for being on the show. Okay, thanks, Stefan. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.